Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. We're the kind of Christians who like the Bible a lot, but we're not going to thump you with it. We believe in the world-changing power of Jesus and the present-day work of the Holy Spirit to change things. Right now, the whole world is in a process of adapting to new realities, and so are we. Building community and sharing all this love and power suddenly seems like it might become a bit more challenging. But really, how lucky are we that we're facing all this in the 21st century? Throughout the duration of this new world coronavirus order, we'll be doing all of church online. But we're not afraid. We worship a God who is bigger than all of this, who's seen it all before, and will work all things together for the good of those who love him. We love you and we're here. Stay in touch and enjoy this podcast. The last couple of weeks, we have been considering what biblical justice, mercy and humility are all about. We've been particularly looking at Micah 6, 8, which instructs us to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly. Ed and Hannah have spoken about acting justly and loving mercy. So do go back and listen to those if you can. In summary, the whole biblical narrative makes it clear that acting justly means to take care of the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the poor or oppressed, basically those who need justice most. And to love mercy means to demonstrate steadfast love, this being the core to Jesus's entire mission. So with those points in mind this week, what does walking humbly mean? In our city, uh, humility is not something that's rewarded. The desire for fame, influence, power, these are driving forces for so many people's lives and the mission of whole industries. We are constantly surrounded by billboards, buildings and people who are actively trying to get us to pay attention to them. Not to mention all the social media or Malibu sunsets or better yet, Instagrams of Malibu sunsets with famous people in the foreground. Um, Humility is something that is seen as passive, uh, non-influential or even weakness. Someone too shy to speak in a classroom even when they know the answer to the question or someone always deflecting praise even if they deserve it. But this morning, I want to spend some time considering why, in biblical terms, humility is actually considered a sign of boldness and how, as Christians, we can embody this kind of humility and how God empowers us in our humility to establish his kingdom on earth. And so to begin, Yoan will read from the Gospel of John. Today's reading is from John 13, 1 to 17. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew he was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have sent you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The Roman world was one of dusty roads and sandals. Birkenstocks have in fact been in fashion since the ancient world. Um, but because of this, foot washing was commonplace in Greco-Roman and first century Jewish culture. It was seen as an act of daily cleansing or a sign of hospitality when you first entered a home. But what's really important to know is that the act of the actual foot washing would have never been performed by a Jew. Even Jewish slaves were exempt from washing feet. Foot washing was a degrading, shameful and lowly task and was almost entirely a job reserved for a Gentile slave because they were already considered ceremonially unclean. So the shock of Simon Peter in verse 8 when he says, no, you shall never wash my feet, is his uh, knee-jerk Jewish response to Jesus appearing to completely disregard his status. Foot washing had such significant social implications that for his disciples at first glance, it seems like Jesus is renouncing who he is, his identity. But of course, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Verse three, Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. So at dinner, Jesus, knowing the Father has placed all the power of heaven and earth at his disposal, removes himself, takes off the garment that distinguishes his social status as a rabbi, and becomes the equivalent of a slave, a Gentile slave to the room, and washes the feet of his brothers and sisters and says, this is now the model of power. This is the kingdom of God. Jesus does not conform to the social hierarchy. His authority, his assurance and his power comes solely in relation to his Father in heaven who loves him. And what does this mean for us? It means that we only embody biblical humility if we first know who we are in relation to God. That each one of us is invaluable and vital, made in God's image, inheritors of the kingdom, forgiven, loved, called by name, known, held and protected.
Because when we are filled with God's love and reminded of who he is, the allure of fighting to get to the top, of grasping onto our own self-worth, of defensiveness when our white privilege is challenged, these things lose their grip. Because our view of who we really are is finally accurate. A child of the living God, already raised into the highest position with Christ. No above or below, no in or out, no better or worse, no more or less human, no one more or less worthy of power. Children of God, all equal, all loved, all included, everything else in our Christian life must flow from this position. Humility before God, King and creator of the cosmos. The Hebrew word for humility originates from the word anar, which can also be translated to meekness or gentleness. And unlike our immediate understanding or associations with being meek or gentle or humble, Hebrew understanding of anar is not quiet or reserved or afraid. Anar is active in its nature, it's bold, there's movement behind it. This is why in the Micaverse we've been looking at, we're challenged to walk humbly. In biblical terms, humility is not fully embodied without action. Gospel humility always provokes a response. And Jesus shows us this time and time and time again the washer of his disciples' feet, the king who rode on a donkey, and God, the God who became human, obedient to death on a cross. Even after his resurrection, Jesus is found heating coals on the shoreline of the ocean and cooking breakfast for his disciples, including Peter, who only days earlier had had denied him three times. Resurrected Lord, Messiah, King of the universe, kneeling down, at a campfire because his friends might be hungry. Jesus' posture is always humble. We can't get away from it. It's there in every interaction. And Jesus calls us to be like him throughout the Gospels. Here are some examples. Matthew 12, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Mark 10, Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first, you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And finally, John 13, 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also wash one another's feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Does that make you feel a bit uncomfortable? As I've been thinking about um, humility this week, I've been experiencing like a lot of squiffiness in my tummy because I've realized that this, this isn't an optional extra. Serving and loving others and being humble is kind of the whole point. And it's so hard. I'm sure that many of us have been experiencing some of the same emotions over the past few weeks. Honestly, I, as a privileged white woman, have felt a massive desire to be right, to constantly fall on the right side of the fence, 
to win the argument with people I disagree with and shame them with statistics I've memorized. And of course, some of my energy has been just and good. I really do have a desire to educate myself and be active in this fight. But in honesty, some of my defensiveness is fear. Or in the words of Robin DeAngelo, my white fragility. I don't want to admit when I'm wrong. I'm fearful about what people will think of me. I'm scared I don't know enough. And I've been confronted time and time and time again by my own hypocrisy. It's hard to say sorry or to admit uh, our complicity and be vulnerable about moments our racial bias and our pride become all too clear. But this past week, I was encouraged, comforted, got a massive hopeful high while listening to Brené Brown's podcast as she interviewed Ibram X. Kendi about his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And something he said has been rattling around my head all week. He said this, I was thinking about the pulse of the book, the heartbeat of the book. I recognise that the heartbeat historically of racism has been denial, has been to deny that one's ideas are racist, one's policies are racist, and certainly one's self and one's nation is racist. So then I was like, well, by contrast, the heartbeat of anti-racism is confession, is admission, is acknowledgement, is the willingness to be vulnerable, is the willingness to identify the times in which we are being racist. It is to be willing to diagnose ourselves and our country and our ideas and our policies. And the reason why that's the heartbeat is because like anything else, the first step is acknowledging the problem. We can't even begin the process of changing ourselves, of acting in an anti-racist fashion, if we are not even willing to admit the times that we are being racist. So I realised that essentially, to be anti-racist is to admit when we are being racist. I could not recommend the podcast enough. Um, I'm yet to read his book, but I'm sure that's also brilliant. His thoughts were like a massive fireworks display in my life this week. To become an agent for change in this current movement, um, as with any other time, we want to bring justice and healing and mercy and all the good stuff of the kingdom. It's never simply about rightness. It isn't simply about knowing all the facts. It isn't about saying all of the right things at every moment. Although, of course, all of these things are important. It's about each one of us having the openness to show up as we really are, with our admission that, like, I just don't know everything. But that I know the one who does. This is humility. Let me remind you again what Jesus says in verse 14 and 15. He says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. His use of one another's feet is a bit problematic, isn't it? Because he doesn't say wash your best friend's feet. He doesn't say wash your mum's feet or your spouse's feet or your kid's feet or people you like's feet. He purposefully says another's. Wash everyone's feet. 
everyone, everyone you come in contact with, wash their feet. Whose feet would be the hardest for you to imagine washing right now? Just think on that for a moment. Jesus always had being right on his side. He knew the facts. He heard the Father's voice perfectly. He knew who he was. He said all the right things. Because of his perfect knowledge of his perfect identity, he was able to lower himself, to serve others, to put them first, to renounce his place at the top of the pecking order without it being pretentious or false, falsely dif differential, without it undermining his ministry or his leadership, without him having to worry about his position, without it changing his identity in any way at all. In order to live lives that demonstrate this same service and humility, we have to know who we are. We have to hear the voice of our Father in heaven calling us, naming us, owning us and loving us. So, as the worship begins behind me, I want to encourage you to allow yourself some time to just let God remind you again what he thinks of you, to fill you again, to fill you from your head to your feet with his unending love. So why don't you close your eyes and open your hands if you feel comfortable, just as a sign of being open to God. And also, if you would like to, absolutely no pressure. But sometimes in these moments, it can be powerful to kneel, to physically get low, to physically represent your humility before your Father in heaven who loves you. So let me just pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you know each one of us by name. Thank you that you care um, so deeply for each one of us, that you know us. Thank you that you know how many hairs are on each one of our heads. And I ask you right, right now, Lord, that you would come and meet with each person, each one of us, and that you would speak clearly, that you would remind us again what it is that you say about us. We just welcome your spirit, Lord. We just need more of your love, more of your life. We just welcome your living water. Please fill up our souls from the bottom to the top, full to overflowing. Remind us again, that we are your child and that you know us and that you love us and that uh, you're proud of us. Amen. Angel is now gonna lead us in a song. If you have uh, a sense that God is speaking to you, can I just encourage you to just stay there? You don't need to sing the words. Why don't you just spend a moment resting, resting in God's arms and in his presence and inviting more of his love. In the glory of your presence. 
I love her. 